Well, I just want to introduce myself to those who don't know, uh, those of you who don't know me. I'm Trenton Walker. I'm one of the pastors with Church 21. My main focus of ministry is on the South Shore of Montreal, and it's just a pleasure to be with you here today. Uh, and so we're almost at the end of our, our time in Ephesians. Uh, we'll have some time in December uh, in an Advent um, sermon series. Uh, but I just wanted to say, it's still not too late to get this resource. This has been the most valuable resource to me, uh, just in meditating on these, these passages and, and really speaking to my own heart. So it's Ephesians, The Wonder and Walk of Being Alive in Christ by Daryl Johnson. I want to recommend that to you. Uh, if any, um, any of you were just thinking, I want to spend more time uh, exploring the Jesus life, spending time in Ephesians. Uh, it's a very helpful resource, and I've actually used uh, a lot of Daryl's insight in my own sermon today. Uh, however, he took our passage for today and preached uh, over three Sundays. Uh, so just to give you a little context, today will be a very high view of this discussion that we're going to look at. Uh, and so that's just a little bit of preamble. Uh, but as we get into discussing the topic for today, I have a question for you. Have you ever played King of the Hill? Okay, yes. And I'm not talking about like video games like Halo or anything like that. I'm saying real life, brutal, like kids, kids like elbowing each other in the face, like rolling down this hill. Like you're like, I hope you didn't get a spell injury, but I'm still on the top. Like, do you have that image in your mind when you think King of the Hill? No, yes. I don't know if you guys are with me right now. Usually it's like a winter sport, I think, for kids. Uh, when there's this big, huge snow mound at the end of a, a parking lot, you have this game, King of the Hill. Everyone's battling to stay at the top. And so as we get into our discussion for today, well, you might be thinking, I like this illustration because I'm notoriously known as the King of the Hill, and that's not true. I don't, I don't remember playing with Evan, uh, but my brother, in case you don't know, but I have a very like high center of gravity, and so I'm not good at playing that specific game because I'm easily toppled over unless I keep my center of gravity very low. So, but as we get into the topic, I want you to just reflect on this question. Are we supposed to be playing this kind of game of life-sized version of King of the Hill? Okay, is that, is that what we're supposed to be doing we're playing King of the Hill in our workplaces, in our homes, with our friends, uh, in our schools. Is that what we're supposed to be doing? Uh, and so just as we get into this, I just want to take a moment to pray again. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word. I pray that you would speak through me, through the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that uh, this none of what I say will be my own words, but it would really be your sp spirit speaking uh, through your word. I also pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word. Uh, and soften our hearts, uh, give us understanding of what you're saying to us today. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, like I said, we're coming to the near the end of our sermon series. We said very clearly that Ephesians 1 to 3 was giving us the, the impact of the gospel. You had to start with the gospel before you start talking about how to live the Jesus life. So now we're right in the middle of how to live the Jesus life. But you have to remember, none of this happens without knowing the impact of the gospel, without everything you do being, being like a flow of understanding the gospel. So I do, th I do think it's appropriate just to pause and, uh, and to review some of what we looked at as we went through Ephesians 1 to 3. Uh, so if you have your Bibles open, you can turn with me to Ephesians 1. Uh, and I just want to read verse 20 to 23. Um, 
I went so much past Ephesians 1. <laughs> there we go. Okay, 20, um, let me just, yeah, okay. So I'm going to start with he raised him. So it's God and him being Christ. He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so in the beginning of Ephesians, Paul was illustrating the magnitude of God's power. Uh, and I just want to let you know, we're going to stay in like the childhood type of illustrations today. So did anyone have a childhood argument where you were fighting about my dad could beat up your dad? Does, that, does this relate to anyone? Maybe it's more like a, of a boy thing, but we, this is, I had many of these arguments. My dad can beat up your dad. And as a child, I knew that I couldn't just say that. I can't just say my dad could beat up your dad. I, I had to provide evidence. My dad is bigger than your dad. Uh, my dad uh, always wins at arm wrestles, but the reality is he beats me at arm wrestles, but I don't need to say that. Uh, my dad always wins at arm wrestles, uh, or my dad works out. So that's why I know my dad could beat up your dad. And so this, this has not been something that Paul has um, kind of forgotten about. He can't just say that God has this immense power. He's providing evidence. And so I'm just uh, skimming over this to kind of review. But basically, Paul is saying, my dad, my dad has the power over life and death. My dad is above everything. My dad rules over everything. And my dad gives life and changes lives. And so as we get into discussing how to live the Jesus life, it's important to look back at what Paul presented to us in the beginning of Ephesians and ask the question, do you know the power of salvation that's working in you? Paul described the magnitude of God's power. Uh, and, and it's important to ask that question, do you know the power of salvation that's working in you? Uh, and then in Ephesians 1.9, uh, it also says, do you know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? And so th this whole discussion we're going to have right now on this is, is asking the question, are you in Christ? And if yes, do you know what that really looks like? Uh, because the reality is there's so much for you if you're in Christ. And I know maybe you walked in today and you were saying, I'm, I'm in Christ. I, I believe in Jesus. I believe his death was for me. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus proves that he's God and, and he's restored my relationship with the creator of the universe. I've been forgiven of my sins. I, I know my eternity is secure in the work of him. And you can say, I am in Christ. But maybe you're here today and you're saying, I don't know what the Bible teaches. I'm here to explore and so right now, I want to invite you to explore what it would look like to be in Christ. Ephesians 2, 4 to 6, we can look at that together as well. Ephesians 2, 4 to 6, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. All of us at one point were dead in sin. Uh, a couple weeks ago at our all church gathering that we use the illustration, 
like the walking dead. We were the real life walking dead, dead in our sin. This passage here, uh, Ephesians 4 to 6, talks about dead in our trespasses and sin. Uh, and what that means is that not only are we dead in sin, uh, we know what is morally right and wrong, and we choose to trespass into what's wrong. We say, I see the line that says, do not trespass, do not cross, and I want to go over there and be in that area. Uh, so it's not even like, we're, we're not even saying, I want to live a good life. I wanna, I'm pointing towards what I think is, is good and right, uh, and I, sometimes I miss that mark. This passage is saying you're literally dead and choosing to go into like more dead, rot, and death. Uh, and so dead in trespasses and sin, but God took us at that point and made us alive in Christ. By grace, we've been saved. And, and so Jesus Christ, in Jesus, if you are in Jesus, you are brought from death to life. We celebrated that when we baptized people at the all-church gathering. Uh, buried in Christ in death, risen in Christ in life. And, and now beyond that, he's seated us in heavenly places with him. So if you're in Christ, it almost sounds like this huge life-size version of the king of the hill is like over. It's game over. If you're in Christ, it sounds like you have been seated with Christ at the top of the hill, and that's it. Uh, there's no more power struggle. Christ wins. It's over. And that's amazing. And in, in part, that's really true. We are living in that reality. But there's a little bit more to consider. Uh, so there's a title that Jesus used for himself uh, throughout the New Testament. Uh, can anyone think of it? It's, it's one of the most common titles Jesus used for himself. You can just say it out loud. If, that's right. Son of man. What do you think when you hear the words son of man? I often thought to myself, it seems very discreet, seems very modest. Uh, so I was wrong about that. Uh, this title comes from Daniel 7, 13 to 14, and I'm just going to read that passage for you. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heavens, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And he was given dominion and glory and a king kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So it turns out that when Jesus uses this title for himself, the Son of Man, he's saying that he is the ruler over all rulers, the king over all kings, the Lord over all lords, period. That's what Jesus says about himself. And so, Maybe that's news to you today, and maybe that's something that you need to wrestle with. But Jesus is the forever king of the hill king. That's, that's just a fact. There's no power struggle. No one can displace him uh, because of the power that God had to place him there in the first place, which we saw uh, previously. And so, even more so, maybe you're saying, I'm, I'm in Christ. I walked in here today because I'm in Christ and I'm feeling pretty good about it right now. And you can probably see there's a trap coming. Uh, maybe you're, maybe you're in following with me in that way, but that's the thing. Uh, there was a super not very humble conversation that a couple of Jesus' Jesus's disciples had with him. James and John were sitting around the table with him in Mark 10, uh, 37, and they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right and one at your left, in glory. Super humble, like, out of anyone in the world, let us be the ones that sit at your uh, right hand and your left hand. 
Uh, honestly, I'm not throwing James and John under the bus. I'm going to say this again a couple times, but I'm using them as an example because we're just like them, okay? We have that desire for power. We have the desire for authority. We have the desire for recognition. And that's what was happening here. And Jesus responds, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So our first point today is, are you in Christ? And now it leads us to our second point, which is an alternate view on reality. An alternate view on reality is this. The ruler of all rulers, the king over all kings, the Lord over all lords, came not to be served, but to serve. So how should that impact our understanding of the Jesus life, how we live in our normal day-to-day lives? Uh, Specifically, in our passage today, is pointing us towards our closest relationships, the people that you're going to go home to today after the service. Well, first of all, there's kind of a problem. No person with any level of authority or power will put that aside and live as a servant of others. No person will do that. You will not do that. Any, any person who looks like they're putting aside authority to serve is because through serving, they're gaining some other level of power and authority. That's how the world works. So to live the way Jesus described, where you're truly serving for the sake of serving alone, we need what we saw last week in Ephesians uh, to live the Jesus life uh, that we see here, we need what we saw last week in Ephesians 5:18 through 21, which is all talking about walking in love, being imitators of God. It finishes here. You can look at it with me, um, but I'm going to paraphrase just to, to skip a couple of things, which is Ephesians 5:18 through 21 says that we need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to be giving thanks always and for everything to God and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, Paul, in this passage, described a lot of things that you could be pursuing to fill yourself other than being filled with the Spirit. Uh, And he talked about basically how those things will fall very short of allowing you to feel like you're filled, fulfilled or filled. Uh, And so Daryl Johnson says this. He says, quit trying to fill your soul with what finally does not fill it. You were created in such a way that what finally fills you is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Be filled with the Spirit of God. Be filled with the breath of God. Be filled with the wind of God. Be filled with the power of God. Be filled with the fire of God and be filled with the purity of God. Be filled with the very life of God. End quote. So our passage here today, Ephesians 5, 21 through 6, 9 This is only a result of the gospel impacting our closest relationships and us being filled with the Spirit. The only way to live in this alternate view of reality where the actual King of the Hill King came to serve and that we live like him is to be filled with the Spirit. Uh, And the reality is that right now uh, in the world, relationships Uh, These close relationships are twisted and tangled up in sin. Sticking with the childhood analogies, has anyone ever had uh, that camp experience where you're you're in this group and you're all holding hands in some random way and then you have to figure out how to untwist and then you're this this big circle after? 
when the Holy Spirit comes and fills you, this is what starts to happen. Your life that's been tangled up and twisted up in sin starts to be untangled. Sin will lead us to asserting authority over each other. Being filled with the Holy Spirit will, be, will lead to us being reordered in the way we live and, and how we interact with others so that we live a life that's a Jesus life in service of one, one another. And, and so this, this passage has been called a household code. And I just want to present to you a household code according to sin. A household co- code according to sin is wives assert authority over husbands. Husbands neglect your wives. Children rebel against your parents. Servants, or for us today, uh, employees, do the bare minimum. That's the household code according to sin. And Paul is presenting a new household code according to being filled with the Spirit where wives submit to their husbands, husbands love their wives, children obey their parents, bond, silver, bond servants or employees o- uh, obey their masters, uh, and vice versa, bosses serve their employees. Uh, and so this alternate view of reality, uh, this is not how the first century people lived. Okay, there were a couple things going on here, so I'm going to explain both of them. Typically, first century women, children, and servants were viewed as subhuman. They were virtually treated as mere objects that were used by husbands, fathers, and masters to their own ends. So that was a typical view of women, children, and servants in the first century. Uh, This was also impacting the way that Jewish people lived. It wasn't part of the, the, the culture that God gave to the Jewish people, but it was a Jewish tradition uh, to live this way as well. Um, so basically, uh, William Barclay summarizes the situation by saying this. The, Jew, the Jews had a low view of women. In the Jewish form of morning prayer, there was a sentence in which a Jewish man every morning gave thanks to God that God had not made him a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. In Jewish law, a woman was not a person, but a thing. She was, had no legal rights whatsoever. She was absolutely in her husband's possession uh, to do so with what he willed. Uh, and so just to correct that, it wasn't actually the Jewish law that God had given to the Israelites, uh, but it was Jewish tradition. But that was just the quote I was reading. Um, and so it's something they had adopted from the cultural norms. In contrast, let me tell you what it looked like in Ephesus in the time that Paul was writing to them. Uh, There was definitely many people living this experience, first century view of women, children, and servants. However, there was also a cultural shift happening in Ephesus and Asia uh, Minor because of goddess cults. There were goddess cults, and because of everyone worshiping a female deity, women were gaining more um, control, authority, and participation in civic life. And so the most important deity in Ephesus was Artemis. There was a kind of a, uh, a wonder of the world was her temple in Ephesus. Uh, and she was known as the queen, lord, master, ruler, savior, chief priestess, and mother of the gods. And so there's evidence that in Asia Minor, including Ephesus, because of worship of deities like this, there was a radical trend happening in regards to gender identity, where men were rejecting their masculinity, which included castration. They were appropriating a feminine identity and serving these female goddesses. 
So there were two contrasting things happening where men were asserting authority over women, children, and bond servants as if they were mere objects, and men were also rejecting their masculinity to become basically women to worship a female deity. Uh, and also in that same uh, other thread, women were asserting authority over the whole culture as priestesses for this female, uh, this female deity. So Ephesus, in this passage, it's addressing these, these two realities, and it's, it's not reinforcing either of them. Neither of these realities is being reinforced. It's actually presenting a revolutionary, extremely re relevant for us today view on how to live life and what it looks like to live the Jesus life. Uh, because Ephesus was being transformed by the gospel, uh, Paul wrote this letter to be read to the church in Ephesus, and here's the first thing that to take note of. Paul addresses the women, children, and servants. Uh, this was not expected in that culture. This passage, if, if Paul was trying to reinforce a low view of women, children, and servants, he would have wrote this. Husbands, tell your wives to submit to you. Uh, husbands, love your wife, addressing the men. Fathers, tell your children to obey you in the Lord. Masters, tell your bondservants to obey you. So this the fact that Paul wrote this letter, and in a public reading, women, children, and servants were being addressed personally. This was revolutionary. But it also addresses what was happening with the goddess cults, where women were asserting authority over men, and men were rejecting their masculinity. Paul is presenting a biblical, Christological perspective on relationships, and it, it really, truly remains unchanged to today. It's been misunderstood, it's been misapplied, but it is, it is unchanged for us today. In misunderstanding and misapplication, there has been within Christian communities and church communities an understanding that you should stay in an abusive relationship. And I just want to say that there is no possibility, there is no permissibility for any human to abuse another human being. So if a man, a woman, a child, a boss, or an employee are being abused in the relationship that they're in, this passage is not talking about that. The only appropriate response is to be removed from that relationship, to be put in an environment where you're safe from abuse, physical, uh, emotional, or sexual, and then to seek counsel. And I know that maybe some of us today have stayed in toxic environments because of a misunderstanding and misapplication of this passage. And so I want to make that clear today. And if, if that's you and you need help, please come and talk to me uh, or talk to one of the pastors of Church 21. <clears throat> but going beyond that, going to how this is relevant for us today, we have to look back at Ephesians 5, uh, 21, which is, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so what follows Ephesians 5.21 is not a new thought. It's not a new focus. It's a continuation. There really shouldn't be, like if you have in your Bibles where Ephesians 5.21 ends with a period, there's a space, then it says husbands and wives, and then there's like a chapter separation, and then it's chapter 6, children and parents. It really shouldn't look like that because 
this is how Paul was addressing the church. He was saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For example, wives, submit to your own husbands. For example, husbands, love your wives. For example, children, obey your parents. For example, bond servants, obey uh, your earthly masters. And, or another way to explain it would be submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and specifically, here's how it looks in your closest relationships. So this word submitting is the key. I'm, I'm focusing, I'm basically preaching Ephesians 5, uh, 21, just so it's clear to you today. We're taking a high view on all of this uh, to understand the what and the why. So the word submitting that's used in verse 21, is for everyone. It's repeated when we talk in uh, verse 22, submit, wives submit your own husbands, but it starts with being applied to everyone, and this is what it means, literally. Submitting, this word used, literally means stand under. It's uh, hupostaso, which is, which is two words together. Hupo means under, staso means stand. So when you're filled with the Spirit, which is the prerequisite for living this way, being filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, what it looks like is you stand under each other. Uh, We stand under Jesus Christ out of reverence for Christ, which is in that verse, and then we stand under one another. And so I just want to read a quote again from Dale Johnson's book. Here it says... Wives standing under their husbands and husbands standing under their wives. Children standing under their parents and parents standing under under their children. Servants or employees standing under their masters and CEOs or masters standing under their servants or their employees. In the kingdom of God, when the spirit of the great king comes, a revolution takes place. We live in mutual submission. We all have equality equal dignity. We all have equal value. Different roles, yes. Different responsibilities, yes. But all equal before God. All in submission to Christ. All in submission to one another. End quote. Submitting means under. Standing under. Not over. Under. And there's, I really tried. I tried to think of a way that you could draw a diagram of this, a way that you could illustrate this with a word picture. I really like word pictures, but I can't. And it's, it just doesn't work. It's like, think of the um, King of the Hill battle on a snow pile. It's like people holding other people up while the other people are bending and trying to lift the other people up the mountain. It's just, there's no way to describe it. But somehow I see it and I think it's so beautiful. There's some image in my head that's like this blurry v- image of like somehow... Like A is supporting B as B supports A, and it's beautiful. And so I believe if you're with me, where you, where you could say, hey, instead of like fighting for authority, fighting and scraping for like a morsel of control, how about we just support each other? If you're at that place with me, then there is a natural, natural response. And that's my last point, a natural response. What would our natural response be to this? Well, to me, it seems like we should do everything we can to pursue this alternate view on reality that Jesus has presented us. Today, as I was driving in, I shared this with them, and we prayed about it, and I've, I've forgiven this person. <laughs> uh, but someone took a parking spot 
and then as I was passing them, swerved out of their parking spot uh, and, and almost hit me in the side of my, my van. And I, so I moved out of their way, and, I, and by God's grace, the person that was almost in my, like, that was in my blind spot moved out of my way. Uh, and so I, I'm like, wow, that's crazy. So I go forward, and I'm going to park in a um, parallel park to come in here. And that same person that swerved out of that parking spot goes in and doesn't even parallel park, just kind of like pulls into the parking spot and just gets out of his car and leaves. And I'm like, I, I open a window, and I was like, just so you know, you almost hit me. But I, I'm not going to go any further than this. But they wouldn't even look at me. But this is, like, that is not the reality I want to live in. I don't want to live in a reality where I almost hit someone's car in constant frustration and anger to try to assert authority or gain control, get the parking spot, you know, get the, the top of the king of the hill. What is left there for you if you, a sinful human being, is controlling things at the top of the king of the hill? People are just getting hurt. People are getting thrown to the side. I don't want to live in that reality. And so a natural response, I believe, is truly to say, what is this alternate view of reality that the Bible is presenting? How can I live in that? And so Jesus, he's saying to us, well, the Bible's saying to us that no one can live this way. All right? Bear with me. No one can live this way. And I'm going to remind you why. But the reality is that wives don't submit to their husbands, husbands don't submit to their wives, children don't obey their parents, and everyone is exactly like James and John saying, give us the highest place of honor. Give us authority. We want control, honor, and authority. That's our reality. Thankfully, we have a, a way to be freed from that reality. That is through the Son of Man, the ruler of all rulers, the king over all kings, the lord over all lords, coming not to be served, but to serve. And this is such good news. This is good news for every single one of us today. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The perfect life, the death, and then the resurrection of Jesus provided a way for you to be freed from selfishness, to be freed to live in relationships where you serve other people. You're engaged with other people, not for what you can get from them, but for what you can give them. No, no, nothing expected in return. You're freed from being twisted and tangled up in that, in that web of sin that distorts the way we interact with each other. Being freed from sin will lead us away from asserting authority over each other. You don't have to do that. You don't have to assert authority over another human being. And so I invite you today into this freedom that Jesus is inviting us into. And that comes through believing in Jesus, believing in the ruler over all rulers, the king over all kings, the Lord over all lords, believing that he came to earth not to be served, but to serve in the way that he gave his life to secure your eternity, to save you from sin, to give you life, and if you're here today and you say, I don't know if I'm, if I'm in Christ. I don't know if I have that freedom. Your response today, the thing that you can engage with, is truly saying, do I believe that the ruler over all rulers came to give his life for me so that I could be saved from sin? Can you admit, I, I think I can understand what Trenton's talking about when he says, like, sin kind of brings this negative aspect, this negative lens on my life. And I don't think it's something I'm supposed to live in. 
Uh, and the Bible says, turn away from that. Instead of saying, oh, there's the line to trespass. I'm going to go in that line. Say, uh, God, is there anything other than the trespassing and the sin? And there is. And it's belief in Jesus Christ to save you. And specifically in our context today, what would you be turning away from? You would be turning away from asserting authority and control over others. And for those who know this freedom, uh, we have one last uh, illustration from God's word to really point us to what it, Jesus shows us as a clear example of what it looks like to stand under each other. Uh, and just a, an important side note, he, this is specifically talking about the relationships between um, brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, be, between the community of the church. Uh, and so, because that's where everything starts. Uh, so John 13, uh, 3 and 4, and then 12 through 17. I'm just going to read that. If you want to turn with me, you can. John 13, uh, uh, sorry, 4 through 5. So <clears throat> Jesus, then starting at 4, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking on a towel and tied around his waist. Then he poured out water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. And then skipping to verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put, out his outer, uh, sorry, and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. <clears throat> truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you do these things, blessed are you if you do them. <clears throat> All right. Jesus gave an example. <clears throat> and after giving the example, here's a couple of things to take note of. Jesus did not say, I have washed your feet, now wash my feet. Uh, it's interesting also to note that this was a simple courtesy uh, of bringing people into your home in, the, in this time to wash their feet. Uh, and no, not one of the disciples thought of offering this simple courtesy to each other or to Jesus. Uh, but Jesus came and he washed their feet, and he didn't say, wash my feet now. That would have been too simple. And let me explain why. We interact with our relationships with this understanding that, we, that relationships have to be reciprocal, uh, that we have to balance the books in a sense. Uh, and to illustrate this, uh, I bought this uh, escape scenario game called Unlock. I played it with my wife. There's the three scenarios. When it's done... You can never play it again uh, because you know the answers. So either you keep it and you offer to watch your guests play the game or you sell it or give it away. So I decided to give it to my neighbor uh, who has four teen daughters. And I thought, I was like, maybe you'd enjoy this for some family time. And so he accepted that. And a couple weeks later, he gave a Lego set to my daughters. And I'm not complaining. I'm not complaining that he gave a Lego set to my daughters. I really appreciate it. But I, I just saw that... I really, I really sensed he felt like he owed me something, that he couldn't just receive that and that it would be the end of the story. I sensed that he really felt like in order for us to have a good relationship as neighbors, he would have to pay it back so that he could balance those books. <clears throat> Jesus is not saying, I've washed your feet, 
now wash mine. Jesus is not saying, I've ensured your eternal salvation, now do this for me. He's actually saying, wash one another's feet. Or as Paul is saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so as we come to the end of this this thought, I just want to read uh, a quote from Leslie Newbigin, who is a 20, 20th century British Anglican missionary to India. Uh, and this is what they said. This is something that subverts and replaces all normal patterns of authority. This idea of not serving back to Jesus, but serving each other. It replaces all normal patterns of authority. It would be impossible to draw a management chart in which A is subject to B and B is subject to A, Yet this is what is called for. The disciples are called to be literally servants of one another. This is a kind of equality, but it might not be confused with egalitarianism, which is based on the doctrine of the rights of man. That is, in the end, um, that in the end makes everyone a monad fighting for his own rights because because it is of essence of our human situation that each of us tends to estimate his own rights more highly than those of his neighbor. This is a different kind of egalitarianism, which is based on the fact that the one alone who is master has proved himself the slave of us all equally. He laid aside his life for all of us. So our our passage shows us today that if, if you know what Jesus has done for you and you have any sense of gratitude and love for him in your heart, he's not saying do this back for me in return. He's saying, serve each other. Show your gratitude to me by serving, by loving each other. And this happens through submitting yourself to one another or your brothers and sisters in Christ and reverence, out of reverence for Christ. Uh, And so understanding what he's done for you really leads you to not thinking, I'm going to wash Jesus' feet in return, whatever that looks like in your day-to-day life. Um, it leads you to wanting to serve each other. Uh, so the idea of this whole passage, I, I barely read this passage. I just took three key phrases uh, because I honestly think this is so clear. I don't even need to explain it. It's clear because Paul was giving an example. Examples are supposed to be clear. So the only thing that you should read differently in our, con- in our current context is verses five through nine. You're not a servant but you might be an employee or you might be a boss. So that's the only thing to change as in your reading to make this contextualized for you today. Otherwise, nothing changed. So the only thing that we need to address is our heart when we read this. Why do I feel like I don't want that? Or why do I feel like this is wrong? Why do I feel like this is irrelevant for today? And that all comes to this passage where uh, where I basically preached Ephesians 5.21, serve one another, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then, as you understand that that can only happen through the being filled with the Holy Spirit, and then it starts to happen, the most likely place for it to happen is when you go home today. And the people that are in your home are going to see that flowing out of you as you're filled with the Spirit. So the most likely relationships that you'll be able to practice this in first is if you're married, wives would submit to their husbands, Husbands would love their wives. Children would obey their parents. Uh, and servants w- or employees would serve well their earthly masters. 
This is an example. This is serving as an example for us to know what it looks like. And, and in my study for this, um, I heard the question, why do wives have to submit while men only have to love, or husbands only have to love? And this wasn't my wife that asked it, just so you know. It was just in research. Basically, the command to husbands to love, going against you know the household code according to sin, which is like neglect your family, do whatever makes you happy. This, this household code is saying husbands love your wives. It's basically submit squared. Submit twice as much as what the biblical calling is for women to submit to, uh, wives to submit to husbands. Husbands have a greater call to stand under their wives than wives have to stand under their husbands. Uh, so there should be no confusion here where you're saying uh, anything to do with asserting authority, demanding control, uh, just establishing this power dynamic, because that's not what's being like, shown here. That's not what this example is. This example is trying to give us an idea of that diagram that no one can draw of A serving B as B serves A. I kind of drew it. No, I didn't. <laughs> so then, in response, uh, are you serving? That's the question today. Are you serving? And you should be able to look and, and just think in your mind and list someone's name. If you're married, a husband should know that he's serving his wife as the wife knows she's hu serving her husband. Parents should know they're serving their children as their children know they're serving their parents. Uh, you should know right away, I know who I'm serving. And then I invite you, if you're not in any of those relationships, the only reason that's an example is that's the most likely place that you're going to live this out is when you go home. Uh, but maybe I would invite you to look around the room today. Because like I said earlier, this, this passage is talking to brothers and sisters in Christ, to believers. So you look around the room here, and if you don't know who you're serving, I'm going to tell you, this is who you're serving. This is who you're coming under as all of you are simultaneously coming under each other. And, and this is all happening uh, in a, in a Christ-motivated, Christ-empowered way through the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then what happens is, because of understanding the work of Jesus in your life, what happens is wives express their gratitude and their love for Jesus through serving their husbands as, not when or after, but as, at the simultaneously same time, husbands express their gratitude and love for Jesus in serving their wives. And then in the same way, children express their gratitude and love for Jesus in serving their parents as servants, uh, as parents express their gratitude and love for Jesus in serving their children, employees, bosses. It's all the same for us today. And, and as I'm getting to this point, you might be thinking, well, first of all, hopefully it's clear. If you're thinking, I don't have a wife or a husband, kids, or like I'm unemployed, it should be clear to you that that list is not extensive. It's examples. So the room here today is the place that you get to put this into practice as, as well. Your roommates, uh, you're, the people that you invite into your home, that's where you start to practice serving, coming under brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, and th these examples are there because it starts with our closest relationships. But this, just as I finish, this all might seem so idealistic. You're like, that sounds great, but it's not how it really works in the world, Trenton. It's just not like that. Uh, I'm going to serve someone and they're going to exploit that. Uh, or I'm going to serve someone and they're never going to serve me back. I want to live in this alternate view of reality. 
even if it seems idealistic. And I believe that Jesus has been doing a work in my heart, and I know that I can pray to be filled with the Spirit when I know I'm not living this way, so that this can actually become a reality. What would it look like for you to leave today and never once again have that desire to assert authority over someone else, to take control over someone else, but to truly see yourself as a servant? That would be huge. There'd be no more game of life version of King of the Hill. It'd be broken. No one could ever play it again. Uh, the, the, the fact that anyone could even live like this, like what I said, is it's because of the Spirit. It's only made possible by being filled with the Spirit, having a continued gratitude uh, to God in everything, uh, fearing Jesus, uh, that in the passage here is a reverence for Christ, uh, and then serving one another. And only Jesus can bring such a miracle to us today. And so my only invitation to you in response is, would you pray that you'd be filled with the Spirit so that you could live this way? To live in this alternate view of reality and then in turn experience what it looks like to live this version of the Jesus life in your day-to-day lives and your day-to-day relationships. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd fill us with your Spirit. I pray that we would leave here today being freed from a a desire of controlling uh, others. Thank you that the ruler above all rulers, the king above all kings, the Lord above all lords did not come to be served, but to serve. And the fact that I'm talking to you right now is because Jesus did that. Jesus served in living a perfect life, giving his life uh, for each one of us, and then being resurrected, proving you have the power to place him in a, in a position of that authority. Uh, and then now we can, we can be brought into living that Jesus life uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit. So I just pray in Jesus' name that you would just pour out your spirit on your church uh, in a new way, uh, that we'd be refilled uh, with an ability to serve each other that goes beyond feeling exhausted when, we, when we're trying to serve, feeling like um, it's not fair, having those thoughts that the balances are unequal, but knowing that there, this, is, this is a life we can live because it, you bring us beyond ourselves through the power of your Holy Spirit. And so I just pray that you would, you would do that for the church today, that you would uh, pour out your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.